she was the first one to teach me to like really kind of like shake my worldview in terms of what I thought the earth was about. Because when I came to her, I was like, well, I, I need to come here to be healed and all this other stuff. And <laughs> she looked at me strangely and she was like, no, your purpose as a human being is to take care of the earth. Hello, and welcome to the Emergent Strategy Podcast, hosted by the Emergent Strategy Ideation Institute. We are a collective of facilitators, mediators, trainers, and curious human beings interested in how we get in right relationship with change. Today, I'll be guiding our interview. I'm Mia, ESII's healer and just all around love of this place, and so they let me hang around, and I do. Emergent strategy is the way we generate and reshape complex systems and patterns with relatively simple interactions. And today I have the great fortune of interviewing our guest, Chris Isaguirre, a farmer, educator, and writer. So let's just start off with welcome, Chris. Thank you, Mia. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. How are you right now today? I'm good. Feeling a little jet lag. Just came from cold, cold Colorado with my partner, but I'm excited to be here and get to share space with you. Oh, yay. Well, thank you for making the space even after the transition. Mm-hmm. Wait, so you, I know this, but for our guests who don't, so you came from cold Colorado to like Georgia? I'm in Atlanta. Yes, I'm in Georgia. Well, actually, I'm outside of Atlanta. I'm in Decatur, Georgia. Mm-hmm. So we're really excited to talk to you today about so many things, your practices of farming, ancestral food and migration. But before we dive deep, I want to, first of all, see if you agree with the premise um, that you are an emergent strategist. You know, we see you as an emergent strategist based on your relationship with land and being in right relationship with land and that ultimately being a big key to also resilience. But I, I want to just hear if you accept the premise of being an emergent strategist. Yeah, definitely. And I, I was thinking about this before um, we got on this call, but I think the practice uh, around fractals. So I was in the um, in the ESI, ESII in New York City. I was in the fractals group and it really spoke to me, this idea that what is small this pattern of what is small then gets repeated to something larger, something bigger. I see that a lot in in land work, land stewardship. I think specifically for me, I'm interested in how that shows up in botany, how it shows up in perfect flowers, also called androgynous flowers, also called bisexual flowers. So looking at these ancient beings, because that's, that's what they are, these ancient beings, and how they are super queer. They're super trans. They're like they, this diversity of what we humans call gender. And so one of the things that I do is I teach about queer botany or queer ecology. And so when I'm talking about, again, like perfect or bisexual flowers, this means that the flower has both pollen producing and fruit producing parts, or, you know, some people say male and female parts. Um, But uh, recently I've been 
rethinking how I'm using my language and really looking at flowers um, and looking at plants and so much of looking at what they do, not so much in this like very like binary, this is male, this is female, because we've also inher- have inherited that through European colonization, which I can go on about later. But we've applied these European notions of what, how, what uh, nature does and then sometimes miss out or have missed out on actually what is really happening. So anyways, yes, I would say I do practice emergent strategy in the way that I view the work that I do and the way that I see nature, which I think is actually a really ancient way to look at things. I love that. It's so funny because I was going to put fractal as one of the things that I see, you know, and then I was like, "Mm, I stopped. And so you were like, (laughs) actually, fractal. Mm-hmm. Uh, that makes so much sense to me. And I cannot wait to get into the queer botany. Yeah. But also, I love that the bisexual is considered perfect. I like, I really like that. <laughs> I love it. So, yes, botanists. Uh huh. I mean, anyway, I get it. You know, there's more. But also, I do like that as somebody who grew up with a primary identity, you know identity as a bisexual person and lots of hate for that. Yes. No, on either side. <laughs> Let me stop. Anyway, I love that. I love perfection. I mean, I think that that's, a, that's like, I think this practice of looking at the natural world, looking at plants and, and natural world also includes us. It includes humans, right? And I think also that is also part of like decolonizing my understanding of what I was taught that, you know, people and the natural world are separate and that there's this hierarchy and that directly comes from white supremacy and colonization right so like the dude who i'm gonna forget his name but the dude who like came up with the system linnaeus started to part of the division right of like the division and the binary that stems from white supremacy right this stems from like who on the hierarchy of beings as the most enlightened, the best, so on and so forth. And so, but that started with him looking at nature and then making the argument that white people are better than black people, better than indigenous people, better than Asian people, right? Like, and and made those distinctions that comes from him as well. So, you know, these white folks got together and were like, okay, we're going to (laughs) divide, we're going to divide the world and make this argument for why humans, and by humans, they really meant white men, are better than everything else. And so for me, I think, you know, actively undoing that is also a reclaiming of like, no, that's total bullshit. That's misinformation that, you know, we, we, people of color, Black folks, Indigenous folks have been here forever and our ancestors, meaning the earth and plants and animals have been here for thousands and thousands of years and never had that separation and I think and and have learned from each other I think that's really really important and so when I'm looking at like queer botany or I'm looking at perfect flowers or like you know um, you might have seen like the mushroom that has 20,000 sexes it it makes sense to me it's like right like nature is just being and and reproducing itself and acclimating itself to the like the best conditions to com- continue to propagate itself um, and also support itself so which I think also f- fits nicely to emergent strategy like what are ways that we can support one another in ways that are non-hierarchical so yeah to just like go back a little bit about the perfect flowers too the 
fruit producing and the pollen producing parts are in the same flower. And that's super advantageous because the bees or the other like pollinators don't need to go from like one fruit producing to another like pollen producing flower. It's the parts are in the same flower. And I think when I first learned that when I was in uh, school in California, I went to the Center for Agriculture and Sustainable Food Systems. I, when I first learned that, I was like, wait, what, what? <laughs> like <laughs> these like perfect androgynous flowers in the, in we were learning about tomatoes. So tomatoes are, uh, have perfect flowers. The other thing that I learned too was that avocados, uh, their flowers change from quote unquote male to female in the course of a day. So that to me was like mind blowing as a trans person, as a trans person of color, like, wait, what nature is doing this? Right. Like, cause I've always been taught, you know, like trans people, queerness is wrong. It's weird. It's not normal. That's like heteronormativity is, is right. And that's what you're like, that's the goal. And then finding out like, actually, this is natural. This is the most natural thing I think was a really beautiful lesson for me. And really, that's where fractals come in. It's like, I saw myself reflected in these ancient beings. Well, not only natural, but also good for you. I mean, you yeah. know, have a title a day. <laughs> doctor away. No, I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, so I think you've described it, but I want to make sure just to hit the, you know, to be clear as much as possible. What is queer botany? Is it just the description of what is, what the functions are, what the sexes are, like in terms of, you know, our botanical kin. And mm. and if we are to take our cues from nature, then what is queer botany teaching us? I mean, I feel like you also just kind of spoke to that in terms of like everything we do exists <laughs> in nature and we are a part of nature, but I'd love to just specifically, you know, so what is queer botany? And if we're taking our cues from queer botany, what is it teaching? Yeah, I mean, I think, oh, that's such a good question. I think that queer botany and queer ecology, I think the definition of it is evolving. I think the first time I, I'm not sure where I heard the term originally, but I know that it came up, like the first thing that I thought about um, when my instructor was teaching us about tomatoes was in 2013. But I think most recently, folks out of movement generation, Moretta Brown, uh, they're not part of movement generation, but they're also queer farmers. Moretta Brown and Edgar Sochi have been talking about queer ecology. And so it's, it's, it's a way of looking at the natural world through a decolonial lens. So where, and, and deconstructing the gender binary as it applies to nature, as it ap- applies to plants and animals. Because when we start to do that, when we start to actually see, like, you know, <laughs> For example, giraffes, there, there's been an observation that giraffes are uh, in the wild 80% uh, gay. Like they, they're they like male on male sex. And, and, and that I'm sure you've seen like the penguins, that like same sex penguins that rear like an abandoned egg and things like that. And so it's, it's looking at the world um, through a queer lens. It's also queering, you know, the lens um, in, in an active sense. So like 
looking at plants and animals and seeing like, oh, wait a minute, they're not just like doing things just for reproductive sakes, which is usually the like, you know, Judeo-Christian way of looking at science or like this lens of like, you know, the biases that scientists and researchers have, right? So that is like, okay, penguins can only have, you know, um, heterosexual sex. Like that's the only way that they can do things. And in actuality, what was happening was that these scientists were omitting, there was a, some research that I found, they were omitting that information that when they saw like birds and, and mammals um, that were quote unquote practicing same sex, like they were having, you know, uh, sexual relationships uh, with each other with the same sex, they were like, no, 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 we're not going to publish that. Or they published it in like Latin. It was like, you know, really like, you know, not something that they wanted, the, that they wanted the world to know. But I think, I think that indigenous people have been noticing these things for a really long time. Like, I think that just, that makes sense that our ancestors were like, people quote this often, but right, that the Navajo people recognize, I believe it's four, four to six genders, right? So I think that this this idea of uh, of the binary male, female, again, was an application, has been an application to the natural world. And queer botany and queer ecology is like an act of undoing that. It's like queering the natural world, but it's also, I think, deconstructing and decolonizing our ideas of how, how to view the world, but also and our relationship to to it. I know um, Moretta uh, Mo Brown talks a lot about looking at uh, the natural world, not in like an, an extractive sense, right? But looking at it as we are part of it, right? Like it's not just this thing where you, we're, we're trying to take all the oil out of the earth. We're trying to, you know, like do all this, <laughs> do all this like fuck shit, <laughs> you know, mono you know like only growing corn only growing soy right like no we're trying to actually as queer farmers as queer and trans farmers specifically black and brown farmers um we're looking at how do we be in right relationship with with the earth Ooh, so much undoing, uh, so much mm-hmm. unlearning from folks like Linnaeus or Linnaeus I'm not sure how exactly you say this person's name who did all the classification systems and Descartes, you know, like, I'm just like, we just, ooh, I mean, mm, it's taking long, it's, it's, it's taking some time, but I'm happy we're getting there. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. And thank you for the folks who have continued to uh, make space for the querying, the, the ability to see, you know, this is like why it feels to me so important to the ability to your experience frame so much of what you were able to observe and to recognize and so why it matters that then so many you know folks need to be in conversation about what they're seeing and observing in order to not have only one view dominate particularly one that is really set on disappearing dismissing uh, invisibilizing great parts of our existence so i appreciate you for bringing that up can I add one more thing? Oh, yeah. I wanted to add one more thing that I think is really important in the like definition of queer botany and queer ecology. I think it's also uplifting the knowledges and practices of Indigenous folks, both in Turtle Island, but I also include Afro-Indigenous folks, right? Just the wealth of knowledge, right? Like we know Black folks, African folks were stolen from Africa because of their knowledge, right? Because of our knowledge, right? Like how to grow rice, right? Like 
I'm sorry, Europeans were, did not know how to grow rice, you know, did not know how to grow okra. Like they didn't know, but um, but they knew that indigenous people in the Senegambia region knew how to grow rice. And so they targeted West Africans to bring them over to the Americas because of that skill, because of that knowledge, right? So I also just want to uplift that, right? That we're also uplifting the work of indigenous people and the knowledge that's ancient. Mm, yeah, that feels so important, so critical to recognizing that, you know, there's a collective intelligence and that was being sourced <laughs> and brought here in deeply cruel ways. It was about skill. And then somehow in order to justify the cruelty, then came the kind of renaming of what our offering and capacity were as, you know, then came the undervaluing of our offering mm-hmm. and came the, you know, so I just mm-hmm. think that's kind of deep and important to uplift that at some point we had to be made out to be the stupid ones, the ignorant folks, the, you know, even though these are, these are deeply, deeply advanced technologies that meant survival for people, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is the basic. So, I mean, I'm interested in what you know, what got you into farming? And and also, if you wouldn't mind inside of that, just sharing with us some of the most important parts of your political lineage. Yeah, that's a good story, what got me into farming. Um, the short version is a heartbreak, but the, <laughs> the, longer <laughs> the longer version is I was working for a nonprofit. So before my, you know, uh, I feel like I've lived many lives, but before my life uh, doing land work, I was um, working in, in nonprofits, um, doing a lot of direct service work. So I was like listening to lots of trauma all day long. I was working first as a intimate partner violence counselor, crisis counselor, and then I worked for a LGBTQ rights organization, and I was the like intake person. So I heard a lot of that, and I burnt out really quickly. And someone, I'm not even sure why, this like former coworker was like, "You go into farming." <laughs> why? But before that, I actually really, I wanted to, I was going through simultaneously when I was burning out of uh, this nonprofit work, I was going through a pretty rough breakup and I wanted to go to Cuba. So I, was a longer story why I wanted to go to Cuba, but basically I wanted to see a different system. I wanted to see a different system outside of the U.S. Um, And I went, I ended up I was first in Havana. I, I was like, oh, Havana's just like New York. I'm I'm kind of like over this. But I ended up going to um, the countryside. I went to Viñales and really fell in love with the countryside. One of the things that was really, really impressive to me was that the little kids, right? So I was born in Nicaragua um, and little kids all looked healthy and well-fed and they were all going to school. And people in Viñales specifically were growing rice, beans, had all kinds of like, you know, chickens and pigs and, and so on and so forth. And I was shocked because this is, you know, the media that I've seen is like, you know, oh, this is a third world country, just like in, in Nicaragua. And when I've been to Nicaragua, there's children are starving in the streets. So I was like, really like, wait, what's happening here? This is this is fascinating to me. I also just really, really felt at ease. My body felt different when I was in Vinales. Like, my body was just like, whoa, like, you can actually rest. You can actually slow down, which is very different from New York City, right? 
Um, so anyway, fast forward, I um, was like, okay, I think I need to be on the land. I can't, I, I can't be in cities right now. And so I ended up applying for uh, a woofing, like woofing worldwide organic farms. That's what it stands for in Hawaii. Cause I wanted to get out of the strength. <laughs> I wanted to be far away from the U S but not need my passport or whatever. Or yeah, not necessarily do the international thing rather. And so I ended up in South Kona on the island of Hawaii. And after some mishaps with an initial farm that was run by this really awful white woman, I ended up meeting two of my mentors. I'm going to call him my mentor, Nani, who um, I just found out recently passed. Nani Kapoi, she was an indigenous Hawaiian farmer, and uh, she's beautiful. Her and her partner, Manono, have this beautiful farm in Miloli'i, um, which is um, a small fishing village in rural Hawaii. She was the first one to teach me to like really kind of like shake my worldview in terms of what I thought the earth was about. Because when I came to her, I was like, well, I, I need to come here to be healed and all this other stuff. And <laughs> she looked at me strangely and she was like, no, your purpose as a human being is to take care of the earth. Like that is why we're here. And then she was, she taught me basically they were farming based on the faces of the, of the moon. Also really important is the, the tides, the ocean tides. Anyway, uh, so they happened to be a queer couple, queer elder, gay couple, elder couple. They were like in their sixties. And yeah, I think one of the things that she, there are many, many lessons, but one of the lessons that she taught me was she's like you know what is what is your purpose like what are you doing here what 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 do you want to be remembered by like that's one of the questions that she asked me what do you want to be remembered by and I think about that deeply but I would say she was the first one to to sort of like shake my understanding of like oh I need to get something from this soil from this earth instead it's like no what are you how are you helping this soil how are you helping this earth how are you helping to like balance everything out oh the other thing I should say um, is that it was a permaculture farm, a permaculture in quotation marks, because, I mean, she explained to me, she's like, no, this is just how my like great grandmother practiced farming. It was not like people call it permaculture, but this is just what we do. You know, again, the idea of everything has a purpose. So she was, you know, she had geese that were essentially eating all the weeds around the coffee. She, they had coffee, uh, coffee trees, coffee plants. They were weeding by eating all the, you know, like the weeds around the coffee plants. And then we're also fertilizing because they're poo, right? The geese poo. So she was like, yeah, this is what my grandmother did. So I think that's also really beautiful. Like, you know, like this whole idea of like commercializing indigenous um, technologies and being like, well, you need a permaculture certificate to like do permaculture. Like, no, maybe, <laughs> maybe it's just about talking to elders. Maybe it's about like really listening deeply. I mean, first of all, may your mentor rest in light and peace and power. Um, and yeah, that was the, 
that was the the question was really you know what got you into farming and you know how and um if sharing some just important parts of your political lineage mm -hmm. yeah i would say to add to that you know i went after after hawaii then i came back to new york started to do like volunteer work because there was weren't very many paying jobs for like urban agriculture and my intention was always to come back to New York and grow food for my community. That's all that was that's always like that was always the intention. When I was in New York and I was like volunteering and then I was able to get like a part-time job at another nonprofit that was like a farming or urban ag nonprofit. Uh Sylvia Torres uh, was the farm manager at KCC Urban Farm uh, where I was also like volunteering and then sometimes get like, you know, some part-time work. She encouraged me to go to CASFIS, um, the, that's the program out in UC Santa Cruz. And then when I, you know, got into the program, I really quickly, uh, well, first of all, I was like maybe one of four or five self-identified people of color in the program. And it was, I don't, I, I hope things have improved, but at the time, really the information and a lot of these farming programs is really whitewashed. Um, there really isn't much information about or ind indigenous farmers. And so, like, for example, we were learning, you know, in the name, the name of the program, uh, agroecology, actually comes from agroecología, which is a Spanish word, which then further comes from this white dude who went to Mayan uh, was looking at the Mayan practices, like indigenous Mayan practices of how to like grow and till the soil um, and how to, you know, basically um, not completely deplete the, the soil nutrients, um, which is what most of like U.S. agriculture, you know, big ag looks like, right? It's just like one crop, you're only, you're only farming corn, you're only farming soy and then depleting the soil, right? And like destroying the soil structure. And so that those concepts are actually like indigenous concepts. And so I started to dig further because I was like, wait a minute, where else am I being lied to, right? Like besides like, besides the tomatoes, right? Also like where are tomatoes from, right? I, it, it wasn't until an adult that I learned and it was like my own research that tomatoes are actually, they originate from Mexico and uh, well south, southern what we now call Mexico but southern Mexico Central America and South America and I like to tell this story about like the origins of tomatoes because right in different places I think that's okay I think it's okay and I think it's okay to be like I think people get really uncomfortable like why can't there be like one story one origin story and I'm like no, I think I may, that might be because I'm a trans person, a queer person, but I'm like, I think it's okay to be in this in-between place or hold multiple truths. I think that that's okay. And I also think that's really beautiful. Like, you know, there's this part of the origin story, some of the research is that the Aztec, one of the like, you know, the Aztec um, kings uh, was the was asking for the tomat i think tomat is how you say it, the the aztec word for it or nahuatl word for it they and and so someone brought him this other variety of tomato which is like the the like peruvian tomato and they just they were like oh, okay so we're just going to include this in our in our diet now like this is a this is a tomato we're just going to include and i think that's also really beautiful like how i think 
for again thousands of years like indigenous cultures have been exchanging information and sharing different types of foods right so yeah i i think i think that's also a lesson in like maybe you don't need to like conquer a a, a particular place to get access to this to this food maybe you can trade <laughs> thank you I'm, I'm i'm noticing inside of your story in stories a lot about migration a lot about being in different places and the kind of connection between you know the the sharing and exchange of practices and information and for me it's a little it moves me to the question of you know your family's own relationship with migration and how that impacts your relationship with land Mm. so yeah so I'm just kind of interested if if you are if you experience a connection or relationship between you know what migration immigration yeah I mean I think definitely there was a severing of that connection to Nicaragua a lot of that had to do because of you know we left because of a civil war that was really funded by the U.S. government right like the Sandinista Contra the Contras were funded by the U.S. government you know Reagan and them Reagan and his boys were pissed off that there was like socialism happening (laughs) in quote-unquote their backyard um, and they didn't want another Cuba to happen and so there was a lot of funding of the right-wing Contras and so definitely there's been a severing I think also I mean it's complex too because when I started to farm, when I was like, I love this, I love doing this kind of land work, my mom was kind of, and I think this is an immigrant story, was kind of disappointed. She was like, wait, you're farming? Like, why? You should be, you know, going to school for, I don't know, being an engineer or something, you know, like, I think that's like a pretty common immigrant, like, story. It wasn't until recently, actually, literally, like, maybe this year, maybe last year, when I was talking to my mom, and she was like, yeah, my grandfather was a farmer and had, I don't know how many acres of land, like they had pigs and chickens and they were growing all kinds of things. I never knew this. I never knew this. And so, um, and then, and I mean, I think as she gets older, she's telling me more stories, right? But yeah, one of the stories that she like, likes to tell is that when he would get sick, and this is, um, she describes him as a tall indigenous man, when he would get sick, he would just go kind of like into the bush and get lost for days to heal himself. And then when he would come back, he would be better. I suspect that he knew what herbs were growing, what things to eat and feed himself to, to heal himself. You know, he had a really deep relationship to this land. Yeah, so I think I'm having more and more conversations with my mom and, you know, I'm asking her to ask my, if I have like one last living great aunt to get more information about him in particular. Uh, his name was Castulo Lopez. And yeah, it's because I'm, I'm, I'm interested. The other, the other part of that, my father's side, he grew up in a town in Managua that where he was like, yeah, like people were, and I'm wondering like when he, when he says town, it sounds like it's more like a rural area, like kind of like outside of the city, but they were growing sorghum. Sorghum is indigenous to Africa. So, you know, and, and, oh, and that part, that town was, is, I think it still is a black town. I haven't been to Nicaragua since 
I was 13, 13. So there's definitely a lot of that has to do with like immigration status. And also, uh, yeah, I think a, like a big severing and a lot of trauma around the war. It's, it's a goal of mine. And I, th and I think through my conversations with my parents, particularly with my mom, I think it's something that I definitely, that connection I want to, in my lifetime, I want to go back and, and, you know, really be in that in Nicaragua. And so, yeah, so I think coming to New York where there's very little access to land, there's very, there's really, you know, in New York City, the reason why I, I traveled was because I wanted to be in, in the, the places that offered, you know, like teaching, up, uh, learning opportunities around land were outside of the, outside of the cities. But also I, you know, I picked Hawaii specifically because I wanted to be as further away from the empire as I could be. Go, like, for example, even going back to New York where I was volunteering, the, the, a lot of the folks who were running farms at that time, this is like 2012, folks from California, folks from outside of New York. So, you know, a lot of sort of like the big names in, in agriculture also went to that program. So like Karen Washington, uh, the founders of Farm School NYC went to CASPAS, the same program that I went to. So I was like, okay, great. Like these folks know what they're doing. You know, I can learn from that program, which, yeah, I'm not going to lie, definitely taught me technique. But I think in terms of like political analysis and like spiritual connection to the land, that's something that I had to like seek out for myself. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing and also appreciating what it takes for a parent to reveal over time stories and, you know, lessons when, you know, for whatever reason aren't don't want to kind of come to the surface so it kind of got me on this question about just listening both like sharing but then also the place of like being in a uh, being in a space to hear to receive the the story and the lesson and I imagine when you talk about your grandfather mm -hmm. going into the bush for days to heal and him knowing the land but there's a guest on the podcast, you know, Lindsay Fauntleroy talks about an experience where she heard the plants saying very specifically, like, I am poison, <laughs> right? As a, you know, and, you know, being like, wait, what? And then an elder being like, coming out later and be like, hey, watch out for that one. That's poisonous, right? So being in a place where she was open enough to hear the actual messages of the the, the medicine mm. of the of the plant and mm. um and i'm wondering you know what kind of listening your grandfather had to to be able to know of either both having been taught but also listening to he to know what could heal and in general it makes me think you know you know what do you do to listen and to be in you know and how do you stay in right relationship with land and in particular you know this forwarding or this practice of ancestral stewardship the first thing that comes up to, to me is a story about compost, funny enough. So as you know, like I, I'm, I, I was farming for five years in Brooklyn at an urban farm that was really like funded by this very large institution that was really toxic. Um, and there were many times when you know, I was like harassed by public safety or misgendered purposely by staff and top administrators it was just you know all the isms were there and I felt really committed to the students all the students were black and brown students and one of the things that 
I started to notice was that when we built compost together, I felt different. And what I mean by that is we would, um, if I was like angry because, you know, some fuck shit just happened uh, and it was a compost day, usually on Wednesdays, we would get food scraps from like the um, culinary arts department. And, you know, these are like nasty, stinky, right? Like you open up nasty, stinky bags of like, you know, decomposed tomatoes and, you know, rotten eggplant and whatnot. And so we would open them up and start to we would do a layered compost, you know, do the the rotten veggies and then leaves, the browns, and then do layers by layers, right? And so as we were building this these layers and we're like, I'm using my whole body, we're like, it's a tough job, right? Like you have to like sift through things and like, you know, oh, we would uh, shovel like finished compost on top of each layer to help the, the process break down. I noticed that we would start to like, my body would start to loosen up. And, this, and I also noticed this with my students too. Like they would come in sometimes in a bad mood, like because you know, like we're in New York, right? Like get shoved around in the subway. <laughs> you have to go to work. You're like, oh god, you know. So anyway, so there or whatever dumb shit was happening in the in the classrooms. And so you know, like all of a sudden, I would feel like my my shoulders would drop, and we would start to joke with each other and laugh, and and then and then start to talk to each other. And so it was like, what if? felt like is like I had to my body had to move I had to like move something right and then we could start to like talk to each other and really listen to each other um and I think I had some of my deepest conversations with my students there like I also we also did like social justice huddles we did like political education you know and consciousness raising with them but I I feel like some of my deepest conversations happened around the compost pile and so I say all that to say is that I started to really listen to my body more doing the work. Um, I think the work that I was doing before that, right, which is like crisis counseling. I also think, I, I don't know, my personality, I hold on to a lot of stuff in my body. And so doing that kind of work, I think, helped. And it's also like a beautiful metaphor, right? Like we start off these like kind of nasty, stinky, like, you know, decompose things and then at the end after a lot of work and time you have like this finished beautiful compost and so also when I was having convers when we had the difficult conversations like we, we would have social justice huddles on on the farm it would be about like patriarchy and consent it would be about like abolition police brutality like whatever the students actually wanted to talk about or was coming up we would have conversations around them and sometimes they didn't want to be in those conversations right because sometimes they're like man I don't want to fucking talk about this right but what I would remind them is like, remember the compost, like sometimes it's hard, but then we're going to get through it and then we're going to like see things, right? And we can talk to each other and look at each other in different ways and maybe change some things on how we behave, right? And so that was always a thing. And then, and then they'd be like, oh, okay, <laughs> you know, like we get it. But yeah, I think in terms of for myself in particular, I started to listen to my body more really really listen and I think ultimately the reason why I left too like right when the pandemic well you know it's like the 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 my last season was in October of 2020 there was a lot there was different shifts in that administration and and not good ones a lot of budget cuts and basically they were cutting the program I, I would be the only like paid staff left and that's impossible that you know I would all of my students were paid. Like, we're not, we're not, you know, I was re always really, really clear. Like, we're not replicating this bullshit system where, like, black and brown people are working for free doing 
agricultural work. That is ridiculous. And so the the threat from the administration was like all the student jobs would be cut as well as like the part-time staff would be cut. And so that that meant that I could only get like volunteer work. And I was just like, no, that's not. If, you know, farming takes people, like to grow food, you need people. And so my body and, and, you know, my body started to feel all the pressure, all the tension, all the, all the anxiety every single day, every time I went to, to work. And I was like, wait, this is not, this is not how this is supposed to feel. And so, um, yeah, I think ultimately it's like, this is not what I want to be doing. This is not how I want to do this kind of work. And, and me being in that place was not beneficial to anybody that I was leading, right? Like if I'm in a shitty, traumatized space, how am I leading a group of people? You know they call me the Night Queen it's also you know I appreciate again the metaphor of like listening to your body feeling into it and allowing this work of you know being with the heart to move through it to produce something else is a big part of you know what being what listening and being in right relationship often means right like sometimes we have to be through the sticky <laughs> and the difficult to a transformed experience and the land certainly teaches us that in compost for sure Mm -hmm. how do we invite more people from theory into practice with farming and i'm wondering is that an important invitation to make you know is it important for more people to farm so how do we invite more people from the theory into practice with farming and is that an important invitation to make oh that's a good question I would not, I don't want to bullshit anybody. Like farming is hard. <laughs> I think it's hard. And I think that, I, I don't know if the, but I feel like that question about theory to practice is like, yeah, understanding that this is a physically difficult job to do, depending on the scale that you're doing it. But even I think on a small scale, if you're growing food to feed people, it's, it's, it's constant. You're in a constant relationship with the land, with noticing, with, I know your question around listening. I, you have to listen closely to what the plants need. I think I learned a lot of that through irrigation, like the, you know, like watering before the the plants look thirsty, you like, you have to water them, you know, like, it's like this conversation you're having with them. But I think, I think, I think that there, there is a tendency to romanticize farming. I think there's a tendency to be like, oh, this is like beautiful thing. And we'll just like skip along, you know, the meadows and like, I don't know, but it's really, really hard. And it's a skill. It's a, it's not something that I think, you know, again, to, when we were talking about earlier about like how certain labor, labor has been labeled unskilled. It's a, it's a really just intricate and like deep, uh, it's a deep knowing to farm. And so I think uh, to grow food, to be a land steward. And so I think just like preparing yourself, if that's something that you want to do that, yeah, it is difficult. And, and it's also really beautiful, right? Like, I feel like 
I, as a writer, someone who writes, I feel like I have so many metaphors that I've learned because of farming. There's so many things that nature has taught me. There's so many things that, that have connected me to, to ancestry and lineage, right? Like seeds, right? Like understanding that these tomato seeds, these tomatoes um, actually originate from a place that a big percentage of my ancestors are from is really amazing to me, right? To like claim that ancestry through the seed, this tomato seed. So all that to say is like, it's really beautiful. It's also really difficult. If you want to do it, I think starting off with close, right? Like, what's that? Small is all, like the fractals start, start close. Like, is there a community garden that you can get involved in where you can volunteer, uh, you know, an hour or two? Like, I think that, that starts it off. Or you can experiment yourself. Like, do you have, you know, a fire escape where you can grow some stuff? You know, you can try and experiment. I think, you know, that's that can be an entry point. And I think, hmm, talking to your elders too. I think like talking to I, I think in particular there's there's a lot of folks because of migration, right? You know, again, have we were talking about also having this being disconnected from uh large pieces of land. But a lot of elders they know. Like when I'm quiet and I listen to my dad, he tells me stories about like chickens running under his bed right so it's like and I'm like how how is how is that possible you definitely were not in the city I think that the information is there and I think that if you are interested in it I, I think that it um takes work but is also can be really rewarding now should a whole bunch of people be farming I don't know what I've seen in my perspective you know what I've seen is that there's a desire for people there's a interest and a curiosity, but then when people start to do the work, it they it there's a realization like oh, like this is kind of lifelong. This is a lifelong journey, and so <laughs> that's fair. Yeah, that's fair. So I think I think um, it's not for everybody. I'm wondering if you know part of that question is also coming in terms of the you know is about having these ap- post-apocalyptic survival skills, you know? Like, do we all need to know how to grow our own food mm. in this time? Mm-hmm. I, I think, I think we need, yes, I think we need some people, but not all people. But I also think that we need, like, you know, folks who are, like, apt in transformative justice, right? Because, okay, so here's the thing. This is the thing that I was thinking about bringing up, um, was that I think, you know, you you'll have like amazing, wonderful intentions of like these, like, for example, Korean trans BIPOC collective land ownership or BIPOC collective land ownership. And people are like, yes, we're going to get some land and we're going to do this thing. And there's been more than um, many occasions than I've heard them fall apart because people have conflict. Yes. I don't know how to navigate that conflict. And so, and, and okay, let's be real. Like we a lot of us have trauma, right? Especially if you are a queer, trans, black, brown person, you the, we're living through violence, right? Either directly or indirectly. And so we have this trauma. And so when we get together, it's like we activate each other. It's, it happens. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've been in those spaces. I know I've like, you know, done, done, shit that I'm sure activates people. You know what I mean? Like I, I've received it and I've done it, right? Like, there, so I think that 
it would be great to have, yes, let's have the farmers, let's have the folks that know how to like, you know, process chickens or, you know, yes, all that. And also an herbalist and, you know, yes, acupuncturist, you need all the healers. And also I think can like the skills of like how to mediate, how to, you know, how to navigate conflict, how to vision, like who, where are the visionaries, right? How are we like imagining things? That's a skill. That's a skill that's like hard for me sometimes. I'm like, wait, what, what do I want to imagine? What does liberation look like? What does freedom look like? It takes me a really long time. And I know there's some people that are like, yeah, this, 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 that, and the third. And I'm like, that's so great, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think, again, mm-hmm. kind of bringing it full circle, I think Nani's with me. What is your purpose? You don't, <laughs> you don't all need to be geese. You don't all need to be chickens, right? Like you can be a banana tree and you can be, you know, yeah, a duck. And you can, and you can be, you know, I don't know, avocado tree or mango tree. So, and I think that's beautiful. I think so. Mm-hmm. I want to ask just a couple more questions. If you have anything more to say about your practices, um, love to hear that um, because, you know, a lot of emergent strategy is about moving from theory to practice or having that union. And then I think, you know, one more question on top of that is, and also like what's emerging for you? Are there, you know, next experiments started to talk a little bit about that you're writing so it'd just be great to hear about that too mm-hmm. I mean I'm, I think I'm really interested in the question around transformative justice I'm really like interested in that practice I think the, the compost was a small like us turning the compost together was a small I saw it as a small metaphor to like what could be possible if we like stick through the process um, and something that I could easily point to when I was talking to my students, right? And I think, like, you know, I love the, you know, small is all, even, like, beginning with, like, my my personal relationships with friends. When we've had conflict and being able to sit through it, which is really uncomfortable, right? Especially, you know, you know, someone who, who you know, has a history of trauma, someone who's, like, have, right, like, migration and war and, like, all these other things. And so I think that the practice of like being in it together and trusting that this this conflict will actually enable me to like learn more about myself and humanize the other person has been really important and I think definitely that's a a emergent strategy practice so yeah I would say my friend Lucretia calls it sitting sitting in the fire with you um she's an Aries so (laughs) so it's like yeah, let's sit, let's sit in this together and see what it transforms into. Um, but I also feel like when I've had those like deep conversations that I, you know, like I want to avoid at first. I'm like, I don't want to have this conversation. I don't want to tell you how you've hurt me because there's vulnerability in that too. Like to show someone that you've hurt me, like this is where you touched me. Like there's vulnerability in that. But I also think that that is um, later on, right? Like after I've been like, I'm, I'm breathing through it and I've like said my prayers and I lit my, you know, my Palo Santo, I'm like, okay, actually, I do care about you. And I do care about this relationship. Let's talk. Well, I have to, I would be remiss to let us go. If I didn't share a memory with the audience of you and hear about if the immersion is still having an impact on you. So just quickly as a reminder to folks, you know, an immersion is a locally based community experience 
of practicing emergent strategy together over the course of three or four days. And my first experience meeting Chris was at the New York Immersion in 2019. And Chris had brought this, what felt, seemed like first a very small little like bushel of lavender that he would give to everyone as they closed. It was such a generous, beautiful, kind, loving, loving offer. And, and not only, so that in of itself was magical, but then it was like, this little small bushel was never ending. So like, there's a like, no way is there going to be enough lavender for everyone. And it was like, no, every single person who shared, um, who closed, who was there, you know, received this beautiful offering. And yeah, it just was like the bushel that, you know, kept going. So I, you know, first of all, I'm like, thank you for that. But it really was like, oh, you know, it felt kind of mind blowing. And then, yeah, I just love to know, do you still have experiences that are rippling from that time or do you still experience ripples from that time and kind of what was the you know what was the impact of the immersion on you that was such a magical time was it three days two days i don't know it felt you know some days it felt like it was we it was four Four at that point i think we may have tried four it was somewhere between three and four i can't remember i think it was four because most of the ones in the and um like yeah states i were okay okay yeah four days four years i don't know yeah it, it just it was magical i think it was a really magical moment <sighs> yes i mean uh in that particular moment I actually i thought we were gonna run out i was like oh man i didn't harvest enough i had to like i i woke up really early it was interesting about um that time i woke up really early so i i have a lot of dreams and i think my ancestors say things to me in my dreams and they were really, 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 really clear during those four days. And one of the things was like, you have to go to the farm. You have to go to the farm. Like that, and that meant me going all the way out to like past Brighton Beach, past Manhattan Beach, basically like the end of Brooklyn. And then go, you know, back to Williamsburg, uh, Bushwick, Bushwick, Bushwick. Anyway, so I was like, I harvested as much as I could at like, I don't know, 5.30, 6 a.m., and then traveled back because it was just like a thing of like, so this is the other thing with me is like, I think um, I like to give. Um, I think that's a practice that my mom has taught me. She's ex- extremely generous and it just, it feels good. It feels right. And so it was something that's like, this is what you're supposed to offer. Like that's what my ancestors told me. And I always feel like if uh, it's, it's important for me to follow those callings. Anyway, yeah, that was a really magical moment. I also remember you dancing, Mia, and I cried. And it 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 it, um, it takes a lot for me to cry. Um, it's something that I'm working on, releasing. So, thank you for that. Also, yeah, it was magical. Um, so I'm still in contact with some of the folks um, that were uh, that were part of my fractals group, but I'm also and and some that weren't. We right after uh the last day we took me Anyawu and two other folks which my brain is spacing out right now took the that strip of I feel like there were our dreams I can't remember what the what the calling was to like write on them but there were our to me there were our dreams packed it up into like a night it looked like a gift and took it to the ocean as an offering and brought flowers and had a whole ritual 
um, on the beach that was incredibly um, magical. And it felt like, you know, we're on the beach in New York. No one bothered us. Like, no, like, Anyabu lit a fire. <laughs> no one bothered us. Like, it was like we were in some other portal. And so I think that the 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 part around connection around um, deep friendships with, with folks that continue, but also the deep listening to my ancestors, I think it's the thing that's continued and, and prayer and ritual, which, you know, while I was working un- under so much stress, there was definitely times that I, I let go of that. And then it was a reminder of like, no, this is, this is something that's really, really important to you, you know, to like connect with your ancestors, talk to your spirit guides, have rituals, enjoy lots of joy, which again, I think is something sometimes can be difficult, especially for me who, you know, I have like anxiety, depression, and also living in New York City. And I think uh, the reminder of like, joy is really important. You know, laughter is really important. Music is really important. Rituals are really important um, and really help help my spirit and help my heart. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for sharing that. Well, so with that, I want to just close with, you know, how people can find more about out, find out more about you and your work. I do have an Instagram page. People can friend me on IG. It's farmer underscore Chris. C R I S C R I S not C. Yes, yes, yes. C R I. Yeah, farmer then underscore C R I S. I am working on publishing some stories. Stay tuned. I'll uh, let you know when those get. I also teach and I'll be teaching some like queer botany and also like writing and food classes. So if you follow me on IG, you can see them there. But yeah, I'm, I'll let folks know about like the, the stories that will get published. And I, I write about what we just talked about, a lot about ancestry, migration and food and farming and earth. Yeah, and, and ancestors and spirits. I think they're all around us. This podcast is produced by Natalie Peart. Music for the Emergent Strategy podcast is provided by Hooray for the Riff Raff and their album, Life on Earth. To support the ongoing work of the Emergent Strategy Ideation Institute, please make a donation at alliedmedia.org forward slash E-S-I-I.